We turn once more to consider the words that are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 24 and 25. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now we begin our consideration of these two verses, this statement, you remember, last Friday evening. And we spent most of our time in defining the meaning of this word hope that is used in two main senses in uh, this uh, statement. And in doing so, we compared it and contrasted it, especially with faith, suggesting that that was the best way, really, to grasp the meaning of this word. On the whole, we were able to say that faith looks backward to the finished work of Christ and shows us what he has achieved for us, whereas hope looks forward in expectation of entering fully into that which he has thus obtained for us. Well, you remember how the Apostle puts this in different forms in different places. For instance, in the Epistle to the Ephesians in the first chapter, in uh, verses 13 and 14, he puts it like this. In whom also, having believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. That's it. He's purchased something for us. But we haven't entered into it yet, except partly. But the Spirit is our seal and earnest until we receive in all its fullness what is there for us in that possession that has already been purchased for us. Now, faith looks back to the purchasing of it. Hope looks forward to the inheritance itself and to our entering in upon it. So that we ended on this note, that there's nothing more important for us as Christian people in a world such as this is, and especially at a time like this, than to realize the true nature and character of our redemption. In this life, we receive nothing but a very small installment. What you and I at best have received of the Christian salvation or ever can in this world of time is indeed but a very, very small installment or foretaste of that which we are ultimately going to receive in the glory. Now, that's the main argument. The Apostle, of course, as you remember, has been developing this from verse 18 in this chapter to the end of verse 23. Here he sums it all up and at the same time applies it. Now then, we are in the position to go on to the application of this argument. It is essential, I say, to follow this in order that we may be truly related to the things that happen to us in this world of time. Very well, now then, let's follow the apostle as he goes on with his argument. We really dealt last time with the phrase, we are saved in hope, or we are saved by hope as it is here, but in hope is better. In the realm of hope we have been saved. We were saved, but in that realm of hope, understood in the way that I've just been reminding you of. But then he goes on to say, but hope that is seen is not hope. 
For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now then, in this further uh, argument, or the application, if you like, of the argument, or the development of it, it seems to me that the Apostle makes two main statements, one of them negative and one of them positive. First of all, he has a kind of negative argument. He puts it as a general principle. He says, hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? In other words, he is ridiculing this whole notion that you can really see or have received fully this thing which by definition is something which is mainly a matter of hope. And he puts it down as something which is universally true. Uh, if you are hoping to meet a, a person. Well, that ends, doesn't it, when you meet the person. When you're standing face to face with a person, you're not hoping to see that person. You're seeing the person. The, the apostle develops this argument. He ridicules the thing. Reductio ad absurdum. The thing he says is monstrous. Well, that's all right. We can all see that, can't we? In ordinary terms, when we're dealing with something like I've just illustrated about meeting a person or something like that. Well, now, says the Apostle, why don't you realize that the same thing is true in this matter of your salvation? Evidently, they were not realizing it. That's why he has to write like this. Lots uh, of these portions in the uh, New Testament uh, are written to comfort and to console people because they were stumbling over this matter. Now, says the Apostle, don't you see that you're putting yourselves into a ridiculous position? You are expecting to hold in your hand something that is mainly a matter of hoping for. You're saved in hope. Well, now, don't look, don't, don't imagine, therefore, that you can see it as it is here. You can't. Because of them. if you could, it would no longer be hope. Hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? Now, this sounds so obvious, doesn't it, when I put it generally. But it's very difficult, isn't it, to realize this in practice. The devil undoubtedly comes in and uh, makes us uh, exaggerate what is possible to the Christian in this life and in this world. The anxiety, perhaps, of those of us who are preachers and evangelists tends to increase that tendency. But we must always try to be scriptural, and then we'll avoid a lot of trouble. You see, this is the statement, we are saved in hope, or as he puts it in writing the second epistle to the Corinthians, in chapter 5 and in verse 7, we walk by faith. Not by sight. We don't see these things yet. They're far off. We see them by faith. We don't actually see them. We walk by faith, not by sight. And we must never forget that. Well, very well. If we are clear about it, it'll come to this. If we've got hold of this principle truly, we will never be surprised by anything that may happen to us in this world. We are not living in a kind of magic or charmed circle because we are Christians. We're never promised that we are going to be saved from the troubles that flesh and blood are heir to in a fallen, sinful world such as this. So we mustn't be surprised when these things happen. We mustn't be disappointed. We mustn't be dejected. Still less must we begin to query the truth of the Christian gospel. Now that is what the devil tempts us to do. 
Ah, he said, you believed in Christ. And you thought everything was going to be all right, but look at it. Your gospel isn't true. Now, that's a complete failure to understand this argument. The moment we grasp this, that hope that is seen is not hope for what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? In other words, we are not seeing our full salvation yet. We shall, but not yet. We are now living by faith and by hope. And therefore, if we get hold of this negative argument, it will save us from ever, I say, being surprised or disappointed and still less being dejected. There, then, is the negative position as put by the apostle. But come, let's turn to the positive, which is really the statement of verse 25. But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now, here is the positive presentation. Now, here again is a statement, of course, that is true more or less in every realm. It's true as a general proposition that if we do understand about anything that we've got to wait for it, that it's, it isn't our possession yet, but that it's going to be, well, then we have to wait until it comes. You have to wait for your holidays to come. If you've got an inheritance coming, well, you have to wait until a certain time. Anything that you're looking forward to. You haven't got it now, and you realize you can't have it now, but you're going to get it very well. If you've got common sense, if you're using your reason, if you're in control of yourself, you discipline yourself, and you say, well, it's all right, I cannot get it until a certain date. And I've got to reconcile myself to that fact, and I've got to go on living until that arrives. If we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Again, it's true as a universal principle. But the apostle, obviously, here, is not merely stating a universal principle which is true. He is using it in this very special sense and meaning as it applies to the Christian and to the Christian's position and condition in this evil and sinful world. In other words, he is not only making a statement, I believe he is giving us an exhortation. He says, if you grasp this principle, that you are in this state, that you're hoping for something that you don't see at the present time. If we hope for that, we see not. Then we must with patience wait for it. Very well. Let's look at this great exhortation, as I venture to call it. Here, I say, is the Christian's condition in this world. So it comes to us not only as instruction, but as a challenge this evening. And I trust at the same time as a source of great comfort and of encouragement. What are we to do as we find ourselves then as Christians at this present time in this evil world? Well, the first thing is we must hope for that which we see not. There's the first thing. Now, here I say is a positive exhortation. But let's be clear about it. He says we must hope for that which we don't see. Now, that is not merely a matter of negative resignation. There is always the danger of falling into that negative condition, of mere negative resignation. In other words, the temptation that comes to us as Christians, I can put like this. We are awakened to the state of this world. We see it evil and we see it increasing. And we know that nothing that men can do can do anything about it. Let the authorities say what they will this week. 
they will soon find how wrong they are. Sin cannot be controlled by acts of parliament. It takes something bigger and always has done. Very well, let's, here we are in such a world. Now the temptation that comes to the Christian is this. Is at times to wish to be out of it. I've had many Christian people saying things like that to me, particularly the older ones. I've had them saying it quite plainly to me. I wish I were dead. I wish I were out of this old sinful world. Why doesn't God take me home? They want to be out of it, to get away from it, because it is what it is, and because as Christians, they've come to see this. But that isn't what is meant here by hoping for that which we see not, because it's entirely negative. Now, the apostle is very concerned about this thing, not only here, but wherever he deals with this particular aspect of the teaching. Now, let me give you another instance of it, which is very illuminating as a commentary upon this passage. It's again in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, you see, in verse 2, In this tabernacle we do groan, being earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. If so be, if, if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For in this tabernacle, uh, we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened. Then listen, not for that we would be unclothed. That isn't what I want, he says. I'm not merely in the negative condition of the Stoic, who just wants to get out of it all, or other Eastern religions which teach the same thing. They live in a state in which they're always longing to get out of the body, because they think that all evil is in the body, and that the body is entirely evil, and they just want to get out of it. But Paul says, no, no, not that uh, we would be unclean. You, you mustn't stop at that. It isn't merely something which is negative and a desire to get away and to get out of it all, to get some kind of release and escape. That's not the Christian attitude at all. The Christian attitude is essentially positive. So he puts it like this, you see. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon. That's the thing. What we should be longing for is not the unclothing, but the new clothing. The Christian doesn't merely desire to get rid of this clothing, this world and all its encumbrances, and be naked as it were. No, no. What the Christian wants is to be clothed upon. He's got a positive outlook. And that is the thing for which he is looking. Not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Or as he puts it later, his desire is not so much to be absent from the body, but to be present with the Lord. Now, this is a, a most vital distinction. There are people who, having looked at life and having suffered a great deal, I say, just want to get out of it. That's never the Christian position. The Christian is always positive. He wants to be with the Lord. He wants to be clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now, this great apostle says this sort of thing everywhere. Take it again, for instance, in that great and moving passage in Philippians 3, from verse 10 onwards. His desire is that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and so on. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. 
That's what he's after. It's a positive thing. He was having a very difficult time in this world. But that's the thing he wants. He says, not as though I had already attained, either we're already perfect. No, he's not. It's, see, he's saved in hope. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. He hasn't got it all. He'd got a great deal and more than probably anybody's ever had since. But he says, I count not myself to have apprehended. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, reaching forth unto the things which are before. That's it. Now that's the typical Christian attitude which you find is taught everywhere in the New Testament. Not confined to Paul. The Apostle Peter puts it in his first epistle, first chapter, verse 13, exactly the same thing. Wherefore, he says, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the coming of the Lord. That's it. Same thing precisely. It's the looking forward. It's this uh, hoping for what is to come, the thing which we see not, gird up the loins of your mind. Don't let circumstances control you. Don't let your feelings control you. Pull yourself together. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. And hope to the end. Go on. It's precisely this same thing that we're looking at here. And you get it, of course, in the first epistle of John in chapter 3. And the whole object of the book of Revelation is just to teach precisely this same matter. Well, now then, the question that's before us is this. Is this our condition as Christian people? Are we all doing this? Are we hoping for that which we see not? This is Christianity. This is what I would venture to call the differentia of Christianity, the thing that marks it off from every other teaching or creed. This is the peculiar thing, that the Christian is one who is hoping for the things he doesn't yet see. We are exhorted to do that. That is our case. But wait a minute, the apostle tells us how to do so even. How are we to do so? That's my second point. And here, again, we've got it in two subdivisions, if you like. If we hope for that we see not, then... Do we wait for it with patience? Do we with patience wait for it? There are two things here. The waiting for and the patience. And this again is of extreme importance. I know of nothing that is so practically important as just this thing at this very moment. Now what's it mean by this? What's the meaning of this phrase, then do we with patience wait for it? Now we've got to be clear about the meaning of our term. Now, no doubt many of you have been reading the New English Bible, so-called. It's no part of the teaching of the scriptures and the exposition of them to be criticizing uh, something like that. And yet, as so many are using it, and as so many even evangelical people rush to praise it at the beginning, I'm constrained to show where it really is so totally inadequate. You see, though the words may be simple, the meaning is more important than the words. What you need in a translation of the Bible is not simple words. It's true meaning and accurate meaning. It's true uh, translation. It translates it like this. 
But if we hope for something we do not yet see, then in waiting for it, we show our endurance. Well, now you see, are you surprised that I call attention to it in order that I may condemn it? If we hope for something we do not yet see, then in waiting for it, we show our endurance. So the whole emphasis is upon us and our wonderful endurance. But that isn't the thing the apostle is concerned to impress upon us at all. His idea is the thing that we are waiting for. Not our endurance, but the glory of this thing for which we are waiting. So we mustn't translate like that. It isn't correct translation. And it surely misses the whole point and purpose of the Apostle's teaching. If you want a better translation, I suggest something like this. If we hope for that we see not, then through patience do we eagerly wait for it. It. We eagerly wait for it. Through patience. You see there your emphasis is upon the it. This great thing for which we are waiting and which we are earnestly expecting. Very well, but let me split it up. Wait for it. Take that phrase. Now, you see, the authorized itself is not adequate. It just says, then do we with patience wait for it. Well, it's all right. It's pointing in the right direction, unlike the other, this new translation. But here it doesn't bring out the full meaning of this word, wait. The true meaning here is eager waiting. It isn't just something that we wait for. There are many ways of waiting. The whole point is that we should be eagerly waiting. It, it even includes the notion of being joyful. I've turned up the very best and latest uh, lexicon in this matter, the one by Arndt and Gingrich, and they immediately give us the meaning of this word used here, eager waiting. And it is eager waiting. That's exactly and precisely what it means. Why am I so concerned? Well, I'm concerned because the whole context makes it inevitable that this should be the translation. The apostle has told us in verse 19, the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, the creation has got an earnest expectation. Well, surely, the Christian believer, the son of God, hasn't got anything less than that. If the whole of inanimate and brute creation is eagerly expecting, earnestly looking forward to this. Well, this must be very much more so true in the case of a believer. So we must have our translation as eager waiting. And in any case, we are driven to do this because it's the only way of bringing it into line with what he's already told us in chapter 5 in verse 2, where he says, we rejoice in hope. We rejoice in hope. We are not just waiting. You know, you can wait and look very dull, can't you, and be dull and feel dull. But it isn't that. We rejoice in hope. The, the joyful element, there's an eagerness involved here. And we, we must bring it in. It's the whole part of this exhortation. If we hope for that, we see not. Well, what do we do? Well, we wait for it. I know. But the way in which you do it is the thing that tells us what kind of a Christian you are. Eager expectation. Waiting for it. In other words, it isn't just a passive waiting. When you really want something, there's not much passivity about you, is there? When you're looking forward to something and longing for it, you're more like a dog on the leash. It's not just waiting, relaxing, passively. You're straining for it. 
Stretching out your neck, as we translated that uh, 19th verse. Uh, the whole of the inanimate creation is doing that well. So are we, much we are on tiptoe, uh, straining out our necks, doing everything we can. Let me again uh, expound scripture by scripture, which is the best way of expounding scripture always. The kind of thing he's got in mind here is the thing the psalmist has in mind in the 130th Psalm and in verse 5. Listen to this, men. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait for him, and do and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. I say more than they that watch for the morning. I like that repetition. He wants you to be quite sure of it. I, he says, my soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that watch for the morning. There are people having to do duty right through the night and they're waiting for the morning to come so that they can go and rest or it's the case of people besieged and beleaguered and they know that in the morning some help is coming so they wait for the morning. They know that when the dawn comes there'll be relief. It's a great thing this to be waiting for the morning but he says, my soul waiteth for the Lord more than they that wait for the morning and then I say more than they that watch for the morning. He said, I want you to know how much I'm waiting for the Lord and watching for him and hoping for his appearance for my release. My soul doth wait and in his word do I hope. But he wants you to understand the eagerness with which he's doing it. And so you've got that wonderful bit of repetition. I say more than they that watch for the morning. Or again, you see, it's Paul in Philippians 3 once more. He's waiting. Yes, but he's waiting in this sort of way. I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things that are behind, reaching forth unto those things which are before I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. That's the sort of waiting that he's talking about. Pressing toward the mark. Straying after it. And not merely some passive resignation and waiting. Now, these things, as you realize, are obviously most important. The apostle puts it again in writing to Titus. We read it at the beginning in that 13th verse of the second chapter of the epistle to Titus. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of that great God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Looking for it, you see. That's the thing. With the same eagerness and expectation. It's the same everywhere. The Apostle Peter again has it in his second epistle, third chapter, verse 12. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God. Now, says the Apostle, if you hope for that you see not, then you eagerly wait for it. In eager expectation, you are waiting for it. My friends, I ask again my question. Are we doing so? I don't call this a Bible reading. I don't call this Friday night a Bible lecture. I don't recognize such a thing. The word of God is to be preached and to be applied always. It's no use our looking at great phrases like this unless we allow them to search us and to examine us. 
I'm preaching. The word is always to be preached, it's to be applied. I ask my question. Can we say that we are eagerly waiting for and anticipating? Let every man examine himself. The world is too much with us. That's our trouble. The world is too much with us. Here's the Christian, eagerly awaiting, looking for, longing for. That's the description. Very well, but let's go on. How do we do this? Well, now he says we do this through patience. Here's our translation in the authorized. Then do we with patience? That's all right, but it doesn't put it quite clearly enough. We do with patience, wait for it. Yes, but the with really means through. Now listen to, again, an expert on these matters uh, defining the meaning of this word. I'm quoting a man whose teaching I do not accept, uh, Dr. Bullinger. I don't accept his teaching on many matters, but on the meaning of words I do. And this is how he defines this word. He says it means the cause by means of which an action passes to its accomplishment. That's what it means. It is the cause by means of which an action passes to its accomplishment. Now, we are eagerly awaiting the coming of this hope. How do we do so? Well, by means of or through patience. We, through patience, eagerly wait for it. What's the meaning of this word patience? Once more, it's important we should get its full and its rich meaning. It means patient endurance. The quality of endurance. Let me say this for this new translation. It's got the word endurance at any in. It's all right at that point. It's right, you see, on the particular word when it puts in endurance, but it's missed the meaning as it so often does. But endurance, patient endurance. What does this include? It includes constancy. It includes the notion of firmness. But here's another good expression. Unwearying. You don't get tired. You don't become weary. Unwearying endurance and patience and continuance. Well, now here again you see it's important to avoid the negative. People so often think of patience as a passive virtue. It isn't. It's a very active one. There are some people who have a reputation for being patient. I don't want to be unkind or offensive to them. But very often, the whole truth about them is that they're just dull. They're not sensitive. They don't react. More or less stupid. That's not patience. Patience is an active virtue. That's why we are so constantly being exhorted to it. And it's something which has to be developed. Patience is a very strong virtue. It's firm. All these terms that I've been using bring out that aspect of the meaning. And you see, once more, we are bound to say this, because the Apostle here, as I've been at pains to point out so often, is rarely giving us a, a fuller exposition of what he's been saying in a few phrases in chapter 5. Now, I've quoted already the end of chapter 2, uh, verse 2, and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, he says, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh experience, and experience, uh, tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. 
Now, he's taking all that up again, but putting it in a fuller and a plainer manner to us. So we are bound to emphasize this particular aspect of the meaning of the word patience. See, it isn't just some negative, passive virtue. No, no, it's a very positive and a very active thing. And it's something which can grow. Indeed, you see, what he says is this. That it is uh, something which uh, grows and develops as uh, the result of the very things that we are having to endure. Now, let me put it to you like this, then. He says there in that fifth chapter that trials and troubles and tribulations actually lead to patience and even strengthen it. And that that, as it produces experience, eventually increases the hope with which we began. You may remember that I quoted this remark of a Puritan about this whole matter. He says, hope is at one and the same time the mother and the daughter of patience. You see, this is how the Apostle puts it. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God, and not only so, but we rejoice also in tribulations, because for tribulation worketh patience. You see, you've started with hope, tribulations come in, and they lead you to be patiently enduring with the hope before you while you're in the tribulation. And that in turn leads you to a greater experience of God in various ways. I mustn't go back over this. We expounded it then with great thoroughness and took a long time over it. And then he says experience in the end, of course, leads to hope once more. You start with hope, you end with hope. But you've come right down, you see. You've come from hope to patience and to experience and back again to hope. And what produces these steps, he says, is the effect of tribulations upon the Christian. So you start with hope. Hope is therefore the mother of patience. You couldn't be patient if you hadn't got the hope. Well, because if you've got nothing to hope for, well, how can you be patient? And that's the whole trouble with a man who's not a Christian tonight. He's got nothing to hope for, nothing to look forward to, so how can he be patient with things as they are? He can't. But the man who's got the Christian hope, he's got patience. Because patience is the daughter of hope, which is the mother. But then he said, you see, at the end it comes to this, that experience worketh or leadeth back again to hope. So there hope seems even to be the mother, uh, patience rather, seems to be the mother of the hope. But it's all right, the one leads to the other. As I've often put it, Christian truth is a circle. And doesn't matter where you are on the circle, you go on and you'll come back to the same point. You go round and round. All these truths lead together and they all work together. All things indeed work together for good to them that love God. Now that's the kind of argument that the Apostle is putting before us at this point. So that we eagerly wait for this great thing which is coming in an unruffled, undisturbed, and steadfast manner. We are not surprised at anything that happens to us. Indeed, we are like the good men that is described in Psalm 112. In verses 6 to 8. Let me read them to you. Psalm 112 verses 6 to 8. This is what we are told about that good man there. Surely. He shall not be moved forever. He shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. 
He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. It shall not be afraid. Now that's it. That puts it so perfectly. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. He's not one of these people who goes nervously to his wireless or television set to turn on the news and say, what, what are we going to hear? What's going to happen now? No, that's the world. That's not the Christian. The Christian's not afraid of evil tidings. He's ready for anything that comes. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. He's like a rock. He's solid. He's unruffled. He can't be disturbed. He's got this quality of patient endurance in him. doesn't matter what comes. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid. Why? Well, because of this hope that he's got. And that, you see, working this patience, which is even strengthened by tribulations, far from being disturbed by them, enables this man to stand like this solid, come what may. Now, you see, the apostle is really still expounding his original statement, which was this. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Just another way of saying all that. So now then, here is the position of the Christian. He hopes for that which he sees not. And therefore, through patient endurance, he eagerly expects it and waits for it and looks forward to it. May I, before I close, just make uh, some two or three comments on this remarkable way in which the Apostle puts it. The first comment is this. What a wonderful picture we've got here of the Christian men, the Christian character. You see, here's a man who can combine eagerness and patience together at the same time. What a perfect balance. Eager patient in a, people in a natural sense are generally not very patient, are they? A man, we say, is either one of these mercurial, eager people, impulsive, or else he's the calm, quiet, phlegmatic, patient type. But here is a man who is at one and the same time eager and patient. Now that's the perfect balance of the scripture again. That's the perfect balance of the Christian character. The Christian is eager, but he's never excitable. What a distinction, isn't it? You can be eager without being excitable or excited. That's just the difference, again, between the natural and the spiritual. You've always got these two sides. But again, you see, because of this patient endurance, the Christian is not a man who sees things in fits and starts, and he doesn't do things in fits and starts. He's constant. He's reliable. He's a sure man. He's a man who goes on doing it. He's not up and down. He isn't all over you when you once meet him and praising the Lord. Next time he comes looking dejected and unhappy and he's really wondering whether he'll go on with his Christian Oh, that's the very antithesis of what we've got here. You've got this wonderful balance. He's not a, a merely negative and a passive man, I say. He's a lively man. He's a living man. But he's not a boisterous man. 
Because you can't have that, you see, with the patient endurance. Each one, all along, is balancing the other. It is indeed this perfect picture of a balance. You mustn't put too much on one side. You upset the balance. Put a little more on the other. Now that's what the Spirit does to a man when he really is in this Christian position. He's otherworldly. Of course, he's bound to be that chiefly. But he's yet a very practical man. He's not an idle visionary. You know the man who spends his time sitting and just doing nothing because of his hope. Now, there were people like that in the early church. You read the second epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, and you will find that he has a statement like this, that, he, that uh, they must teach these Thessalonians that if a man will not work, that he shan't eat either. Now, why do you think he said a thing like that? Was he just uh, rebuking laziness? Not at all. He was dealing with people who thought that they were ultra-spiritual and who were so clear about the second coming of our Lord that they just spent the whole of the time looking up into the heavens and they did nothing but expected to be fed by others. And the apostle in his typical, practical, down-to-earth manner says, if a man will not work, neither shall he eat. That's the glory of this Christian man. His head, as it were, is in heaven, but his feet are on the earth. He's not an idle visionary. He's a most practical man. He's got this perfect balance, eagerness, patient endurance. Oh, I rather like the word, the expression that is used by the Apostle Peter at this point. He calls all this a lively hope. A living or a lively hope. It is a living thing. It's a live thing. It's not a mere whim. It's not a mere fancy. It's not a mere passing feeling. It's a living thing. A living hope. And that's why, again, you see, he is so practical and says what I've already quoted, that you gird up the lines of your mind and you don't live merely in the, in the realm of feelings. Gird up the lines of your mind and you're sober, as well as having this lively and this living hope. Well, there's my first comment, the balance. Secondly, the nature of the longing and the eager expectation. What is the nature of this? Well, it's not something theoretical and academic. Now, I don't want to be misunderstood, but my friends, what the Apostle says here, if we hope for that we see not, then do we, through patience, eagerly await it. It does not just mean that we've got that abstract theoretical interest in the details of prophetic teaching. It isn't just something bookish and academic. It doesn't mean that we become involved in the vagaries of a dispensationalism and that we spend all our time in trying to fix this and interpret that. No, no, this is something personal. This is something which affects a man's life and feelings. It isn't that you spend the whole of your time just intellectually trying to unravel this and work out your schemes. No, no, this man's speaking from the heart as well as from the head. This element of patient endurance comes into it. There are so many, it seems to me, whose whole attitude towards this question of this glory that is coming to us is merely a matter of theory. It's merely a matter of head knowledge. And they spend their time arguing and wrangling about mere details that in a sense ultimately don't matter and which certainly nobody can determine. And they miss the glory of it all. The question I ask therefore is this, not, is, not what is your prophetic theory tonight, but are you really longing for this thing? Is this in your heart as well as in your head? It was in the case of the apostle. 
The apostle says, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, that I might be made conformable unto his death if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. That's what he was longing and yearning for. Do we? Let's be careful, my friends, that the devil doesn't sidetrack us. I believe he's been doing it for years and that this glorious truth has been hidden by this cloud which has come in with this mere theoretical interest in these glorious matters. I'm examining your heart. If you can't say that from your heart you're longing for this and living for it, well then your other interest is of very little value to you. The apostle could say, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He had a longing to be with Christ, which is far better. If our study and our interest doesn't bring us to that, be careful, I say, beware of it. It hasn't got the right character. It hasn't got the right nature as a longing. So I end with a very practical point. How can we become like this? How can we, through patience, eagerly await it? Let me give you headings. Work it out for yourselves. Here is the method taught everywhere in the New Testament. First and foremost, if you want to know what it is to be eagerly awaiting for those things, see what this present world is. It's this world that keeps us from that. I say again, the world is too much with us. Well, very well, examine the world. See it for what it is. Look at it. Don't be misled by it. Don't be captivated by it. It's all rottenness. It's all ugliness. It's all foulness. Don't allow that to occupy your time and your attention. See through it. And then having seen through it, finish with it. Mortify therefore your members that are on the earth. Fornication, evil concupiscence, inordinate desires, and all the rest of them. Get rid of them. Mortify them. Finish with them. Then, the next step is remind yourself of who you are and what you are. If ye be risen with Christ. And you are if you're a Christian. Well, remind yourself that you are. That's the great teaching we've seen everywhere in this epistle. We have died with Christ. We've been crucified with him. We've been buried with him. We've finished with the law. We are dead to sin. We are new men. We are alive unto God. Well, remind yourself of that. And it takes time to do it, but we've got to do it. The apostle did. The saints of the centuries have done it. Then here's the phrase. Set your affections on things above not on things on the earth. Now, you've got to do that. You've got to set your affections. Don't wait for something to be worked up in you. Set your affections on things above, not on things which are on the earth. That means dwell on them. Meditate upon them. Don't just say, ah, yes, I've gone through this portion of Scripture I, with patience to wait for it. I've got the meaning of the words. No, no, stop and think. Say, is this true of me? Is that coming to me? Dwell on it. Think about it, meditate about it, pray for light upon it until it becomes real to you. We must seek him himself. That's the secret of it all. To know the Lord, that I might know him and the fellowship of his suffering. And then, having got to know him, think of the things that he's preparing for us. He's gone to prepare a place for us. I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered the heart of men the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. Think of the realm to which we are going. How long are we to be in this world? Well, the more short it seems to be, think more and more of the world you're going to. Set your affections there. 
Think of it all. Try to conjure it up from what you read in the scriptures. That's what he means by set your affections. And go on doing so. Contemplate what is coming to us. Beloved, now, says John, are we the sons of God. We know not yet what he shall be, but we know this. That when he doth appear, we shall see him as he is, and we shall be like him. How often do you dwell on that? How often do we think about that and meditate about it? This is Christianity. This is how these first Christians lived. And they shocked everybody. And they turned the world upside down. Because they were people who had their affections there, not here. We shall see him as he is. And we shall be like him. Go on doing it until all this becomes real to us. Here's the thing. How real to you is this other realm? How real is this blessed hope? Make it real by doing what I'm saying. Reading, meditating, praying, asking him to make it clear. The Spirit is sent to do that. Go on doing so until, you know, you'll be conscious of that other realm. It'll be the biggest thing in our lives. Shall I close by putting it like this? I read a most wonderful statement only this very week as I was preparing these very methods. I was reading an extract out of an autobiography of an old Welsh preacher whom I had the privilege of knowing. He died in 1929. I read this most marvelous thing. He says there in his autobiography that when his mother died, he was looking through her papers and clearing everything up. In a very old book, he came across a little sheet of paper. And on that sheet of paper, he found that one of his sisters had written these words. She was then quite a little girl. I estimate that she was somewhere between 10 and 12. But uh, the father died on this particular day. And evidently this little girl had written this on this piece of paper that very day and had put it in the old book. And here her brother, much later on when his mother died, clearing up, happened to find it. And the little girl had written this the very day that her loving father died. Today, Dada has left us. He has gone into the glorious liberty of the children of God. A little girl aged 12, you see. In the 60s of the last century, could write like that. Why? Well, because that's how she thought. That was the climate of their lives. Our father had gone. Our father today has left us. He has gone into the glorious liberty of the children of God. How many of us think like that? How many of us could write Something like that. Is that our view of our own ultimate departure? Do we think instinctively like that when our loved ones and dear ones who are Christians leave us and go on? This, my dear friends, is Christianity. This is the true and the real thing. And I ask again, what's the value of all head knowledge if it doesn't bring us to this? This is triumphing. There's a little girl who's triumphing the day of her father's death because she knows where he's gone. And she knows that all Christian people go there. It transforms everything. Life, death, 
everything else becomes different. If we hope for that, we see not. Then, through patience, do we with eager expectation wait for it. What a poor generation of Christians we are. What's gone wrong, I wonder, during the last hundred years or so? Why has all this vanished out of evangelical speech and thinking? I think there's only one answer. We're all so subjective, always looking at ourselves and our happiness and so on. My friends, set your affections on things above. Look at him, consider him. It transforms everything. And that is the way it seems to me, that is taught so clearly in the scripture, that we through patience should eagerly wait for this blessed hope that is set before us. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, forgive us, we pray thee, for our blindness, for our slowness to see these things. Forgive us for allowing so many other matters that are subsidiary to come between us and these glories. O God, we pray thee that thou wouldst enable us by thy Spirit to set our affections on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Teach us to become such that we shall fear our graves as little as our beds. O God, so reveal thyself to us and what thou hast prepared for us, that we with an eager expectation shall all be looking for and waiting for and hastening unto the coming of these blessed and glorious things. O Lord, search us more and more by thy truth, we pray thee, Shake us, O God, from our indifference and lethargy and our preoccupation with so many things in this passing evil world that we, realizing that nothing finally matters but this, shall give ourselves unto these things and so worthily represent thee while we are left in this passing world of time. God, look down upon us and bless us. We ask it in the name of him who, having come into our world, mastered it, conquered it, defeated every enemy and foe, rose triumphant o'er the grave, and is seated at the right hand of thy glorious power at this moment, and who will come again to finish the work and to receive us unto himself. We ask it in his most blessed name. And now may the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now throughout the remainder of this our short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage and until hope shall be turned into sight in the glory everlasting. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. 
You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.